Our Old Testament reading is from Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. We've been reading through this here the past few weeks. Pastor Miller will be preaching on it today, uh, just to kind of catch you up with where we are in the story. Jonah has been asked to go to Nineveh to preach to the people there in that city, and he has refused. He's gotten on a boat and is trying to escape God's command. And uh, he's just now been woken up on the boat that he's on and uh, confessed that he thinks that the storm that they're experiencing is because he's on the boat. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, Three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So uh, Joe got us set up pretty good here. Uh, jumping into the story, Jonah is uh, confronted by the fact that uh, he's the one who's caused this mess. And the uh, sailors ask him, what do we do then to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And uh, Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Okay, so question. I think, I think this question's interesting. What's, Jonah, what's Jonah's motivation for wanting to be thrown into the sea? Why, does, why is he saying, throw me into the sea? Okay, there's two, like, if, you, if you read the commentaries, there's basically two answers to this question. Uh, uh, the first one is this, uh, Jonah has a death wish. Uh, Jonah wants to die. All right, uh, actually in the story, uh, this looks like this is probably true. Uh, Jonah's in the middle of this huge massive storm and everybody on the ship, all the professional sailors are worried that they're going to drown. And what's Jonah doing? Jonah is down uh, sleeping. Like, how is that possible unless he's just given up? Another piece of evidence. He's going to go. He's he's going to go to Nineveh because he doesn't. He basically doesn't have a choice, right? I mean, a lot of you know what's going to happen to him. He's going to get rescued, spit up on dry land, and he goes to Nineveh. And then he says, "God." God's going to forgive the Ninevites through Jonah's preaching. And then Jonah's going to say in chapter 4, God, I knew that you were going to do that. Why didn't you just kill me? I just want to die. He says it twice in chapter 4. He asked God two times to kill him. It looks like Jonah has a death wish. He's not interested in being alive. Um, It's a bad spot for any of us to be in. Has anybody ever felt like that? Uh, I'll tell you the truth. I I felt like that before. I, I I don't think that I've ever had suicidal thoughts i don't think i've ever had but but i I have at times in my life thought you know what i'm I'm just done with this like if i could die right now it would be okay i specifically i've had moments like that uh in times in my life when i've run really really hard away from god and that's actually i think that what we're seeing happening here jonah's jonah's running away from his vocation right i mean god's called him to be holy and to love the world. And Jonah doesn't want any part of part two of his vocation. And so he's going to run. And one of the payouts from that is you end up being disconnected from who God created you to be. So God created everybody. Those of us who are Christians, we know that this is true. Those of us who aren't Christians, it's still true for you that God created you to be holy, to be like him. It's a fancy word to mean be like him. And also to love the world, to be his agent for his kingdom in the world. And when we aren't holy, or when we don't love the world, we're disconnected from who we were designed to be. And it just makes sense that you would feel a level of depression or anxiety about that, maybe even worse. You know, uh, so Steve Jobs did this uh, famous commencement speech speech once where he was uh he was talking to this uh group of uh 
college graduates and he's saying all the things that you're supposed to say. But he's talking about life and the nature of life too because uh, he's a super wealthy person and so of course we value his opinions on life. Uh, That was a little bit sarcastic. And he says in the point of the sermon, I'm going to quote this directly to you, he said, sermon, in the quote of the speech, uh, death is, he says, death is very likely the single best invention of life. Now, I don't even know what those words mean. I, I kind of know what he's saying, but I, I don't even know. Death is, is an invention of life. I'm not sure what he means. But he says, uh, death is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Death is the single best invention of life because it clears out the old to make way for the new. Th- this sort of disconnection from who we are creationally, this sort of disconnection from the value of your own life is, is in many ways heartbreaking. Right? Now, he says something different at the end of his life, and, and he uh, you know, had brain cancer and uh, put, put off, if you know the story of Steve Jobs, he put off treatment for a long time, and then when he finally decided to go get treatment, it was long past the point when he could have been cured, and his death ended up being a really bad one. <laughs> really long, but brain cancer is the worst. I, I, I would rather probably drown or die in a fire. But his, his death was drawn out, and one of the last things that's recorded that he said, you know, for, for public consumption was, it, it wasn't worth it. You know, you chase one more company acquisition. You chase one more technological development. And basically something on the lines of, like, your relationships are the most important. He changes his tune, you know, confronted with his own mortality, he realizes that it's flippant and trivial to say things like, death's a great invention. It clears out the old. and it makes, Once you realize you're one of the olds, you know, and that you're about to be cleared out, it's a horrible thing to think and say. Jonah's at that point. He's at the point where some of you have been too. Th- th- this point where like, I, I, you know, God, you can off me right now and I would be fine with it. That, that's a heartbreaking place to be. Because it means you're disconnected from whom, God's, for, 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 from whom God's made you to be. And I think Jonah's at that point. But there's something else here, too. Here's the second option. The first is he's got a death wish. The second option is, is he genuinely thinks this is going to help these sailors out. And I think that this is the case, too. If you look at verse 12. So the sailors ask him, what do we do? And Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. Jo- Jonah, at this point, is not... He's not to the place where... He's interested in what God thinks about what he's done, but he has gotten to the place where he's concerned about these guys who he realizes they're about to die because of of a sinful decision I've made. The sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's actually actually a a good development in Jonah's life. He's not been concerned about the pagans, right? Uh, Part one of his vocation, holiness, he's fine with that. Part two of his vocation loving others, reaching out with the gospel to those who don't know. He did not want any part of that. Now he doesn't really have a choice. He's trapped on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea with a group of people who are about to die because of his decision. And at that moment, he looks around and for the first time in the story, sees outside himself to the plight of others. It's a good sign for Jonah. He's not all the way there yet. His tri- Jonah's journey to mercy is a long and slow one. And by the way, at the end of chapter 4, we're still not sure he's completely there. It's one of the things that makes uh, Jonah a really interesting book to read. But he's making baby steps. He's not as turned in on himself as he was before the storm happened and before he realized what's going to happen. So 
they throw him into the water, and the storm stops, the raging stops. It's actually the, the Hebrew word for like anger. The anger of the storm subsides. And then these sailors in, uh, uh, come to faith, it looks like. Verse 14, they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they picked him up and hurled him, and the sea stops. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It was an interesting phrase in Jonah. There's a lot of fear going on prior to this. In the storm, uh, several times in Hebrew, it says they feared a great fear. Usually in English, we translate it, they feared exceedingly. But now the storm's over and the danger's passed. But the fear doesn't go away. It's just, it's just moved its, its target from this storm, which they refer to this God who can control the weather. The God of sea and land, as Jonah describes him. So uh, it looks like they get converted. I mean, there's three things here. First of all, they turn to Yahweh, right? I mean, they say, O Lord, in verse 14, they say, O Lord, and they use behind that Lord there in Hebrew is the personal name of the creator God of the Bible, Yahweh. So they turn, you know, they're, they're, they're praying to their individual regional gods at the beginning of the storm. And at the end of the storm, they're praying to the one true God, the God of the Bible. Uh, so they don't, they don't run from Yahweh. They run to him. They ask for forgiveness. They say, okay, this, this prophet of yours has told us to throw him into the water. We're going to do it. But we want you to forgive us. They recognize that Yahweh is the source of forgiveness. And they trust in him. They say, because you, Yahweh, you do whatever you want to do. It's the last line of verse 14. Oh, Lord, you have done as it pleased you. You do what you want to do. So it looks like they come to faith. There's two interesting things about this, I think. One is that, you know, Jonah refuses to evangelize the unbelievers, and he ends up doing it anyway. He doesn't do it the way that, you know, that you learn when you're doing the, you know, the four spiritual laws, or, you know, you're, you're in your crew group, and they tell you, or you're, you're in your intervarsity group, and they're telling you how to evangelize. It really isn't the, you know, the textbook way. But he ends up being the agent for their conversion by God's sovereignty. God's going to do what he wants to do, right? I mean, this should should encourage us for evangelism. God's going to do what he wants to do. God is going to get the world back for himself. That's the story. That's what the story of the Bible is about. We stole the world, his universe away from him. He's determined to get it all back. He's willing to die to do that. You can't actually stop that. Instead, what evangelism is, evangelism is not God saying, look, guys, I really need your help. I've drawn up this blueprint for the, the reclamation of my universe, and I'm going to need you guys to do the work because, honestly, I'm kind of busy up here. No, no, God's going to do the work of reclaiming the world for himself. What evangelism is, it's not him needing you, and so here's your task. It's him saying, I want you to look like me so much that I'm going to let you participate in this world reclamation project with me. I'm going to let you guys play. You, you guys should be encouraged. We should be encouraged to do evangelism, because he's going to do it anyway, and he lets us be a part of it, and that, that, that frankly, is a bit of fun. And it means that you can't lose, right? Jonah can't lose. Jonah's a prophet. People are going to come to faith through Jonah's testimony, whether he's preaching or whether he's floundering around in the water. You, there's not like the magic bullet things that you can say to unbelievers to bring them to faith, and you don't need to. You just need to be there and let God do his mission. To be there and love people, invest in their lives. To speak words when it's appropriate, to be silent when it's appropriate. God is going to save the world, and he lets us be involved. That's the first thing. Second thing, this phrase, 
God does whatever he wants. I'm going to read a little bit of Old Testament to you. It shows up three times in the Old Testament. God is God. He does whatever he wants. Well, I'm going to read some of these to you. Uh, one is in Psalm 115. And you'll see a common theme. This is why I'm reading this is because every time the phrase, God is God, he does whatever he pleases or whatever he wants, shows up, there's always a theme that it goes along with it. And see if you can catch it here. In Psalm 115, uh, the psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God's in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Our God does whatever he wants. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Their idols have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but don't see, ears, don't hear, noses, don't smell, hands, don't feel, feet, don't walk, and they don't make a sound in their throat. Their idols are just, you know, pieces of metal or wood, just material objects. They don't, they aren't actually persons. Our God is a real person. Those who make them, here's, here's, here's a good line. Those who make them become like them. We talked a little bit about that last week, and, and I'll touch on it again. The things that you worship, the things that you, your life depends upon, the things that if you lose, you feel like your life will be over, those things will create you in their image. You worship money, you'll end up being a miser. You worship sex, you'll end up being a pervert. You worship being in control, you'll end up being a control freak. It'll eat you up. That's what our gods do to us. That's what the psalmist recognizes. Uh, another one, Psalm 135. For I know that Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Do you get the, you get the connection here? Every time this phrase pops up, Yahweh does what he wants to do, it's always in contrast to the false idols which are incapable of doing what they want to do. The only power they have, to do, they have is to enslave us. One more from Isaiah 46. God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. I'm in a separate category, God says. I'm not in any sort of like niche or cubbyhole or logical category that you can put me in. I can't be compared. Those who lavish gold, so here's, 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 here's an option. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. And then they fall down and worship. They, they lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. So Isaiah is being sarcastic. Here's the god that they worship, but he, he actually can't get around. If he needs to get across the room, you actually have to pick him up and move him. What kind of God is that? They can't even like move across the room on his own. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I will accomplish all my purpose. And in Hebrew, he says that phrase. I'm God and I do what I want. Again, in contrast to the false idols, the false idols that we worship end up killing us. There's only one God who can actually rescue us, and that's Yahweh, the creator God. This is called the gospel. How does this work? Okay, all, the, all the false idols that we pour our energy into, like being important or being funny or being well-respected or having the kids that everybody looks at and says, whoa, you have great kids, or sex or power or money, all of those things you have to feed from yourself. You have to invest yourself into that thing so it will make you what you think you need to be to be fulfilled or satisfied or happy. You know that that will empty you out. That kind of energy it takes to fill up that bottomless pit of like, I always have to be respected. It can't possibly, like even if everybody in this room would respect me all at one time, which is never going to happen, I'll still have to show up next week and do it again. And what about Monday through Saturday? when I don't have you here to scratch that itch. That's going to eat me alive. 
It's going to gut me from the inside because I have to do it for myself. I have to earn your respect for myself. Here's what the gospel is. The one true God doesn't need to be picked up and moved across the room. He can actually solve your problems. He can pick you up and carry you across the room. He does it for you. This is what the gospel is, is that the creator God satisfies you. You don't have to satisfy it. You don't have to put more money into the bank account so that your idol of money gets fulfilled. You don't have to have more sex so that your idol of sex gets fulfilled. You don't have to say more funny jokes so that your idol of being the funny guy in the room gets fulfilled. God comes and fulfills you. That's the gospel. Jonah's not quite there yet. He's not quite there yet. But it looks like these sailors are. Okay. In the story, so far I've been talking about us. Mostly I've been talking about us like we're the Jonah in the story, right? Here's what Jonah does. We shouldn't be like that. But actually at this point in the story, we're more like the sailors. It's anytime you read a story in the Bible or a piece of fiction or whatever, ask yourself the question, like, who am I supposed to identify with in the story? And at this point, you and I are the sailors, right? We're the ones who need rescued. And hopefully we're not the ones getting thrown in the water. Here's what I mean by that. There's a, word that, there's a funny word that Jonah uses here when he tells the sailors to throw them in the water. So the sailors say, what do we do for you? And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. That's as weird in Hebrew as it is in, in English. Like if you're, so I can't even imagine this, right? But you're on the ship and you're going to say, throw me into the sea. You would just say, like, you should throw me overboard. But he says, pick me up and throw me over. I mean, certainly they know how to throw him overboard, right? Like, do, do they need instructions on like what to do? First you pick me up and then you launch me into the water. That's probably not the case. And actually, it's even more weird in Hebrew because the, the word he uses for pick me up is not the normal word for pick me up. It's a word, nasa, and it's almost always used for lifting up sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, frequently in the Old Testament, it actually gets translated forgiveness. I'll give you an example. In um, Exodus 34, um, God is describing himself to Moses. He says, "I'm I'm a God of great mercy and great grace and I forgive the sins. I, I keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Sin. Actually, in that word forgiving, it's actually the word lifting up. Lifting up iniquity and sin. And this is the word it's used. I'll give you one more example. Le- Leviticus 16 says, uh, and this is talking about the Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, where they send, the priest lays his head on the scapegoat. It's a goat who's going to be like a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole people. It's an Old Testament thing. The priest puts his head on the hands of the goat, and then they send the goat off into the wilderness to symbolize all the sins of the people are going to get placed on this one animal and then sent out from the middle of us. But what he says is the priest, the goat, is that the priest is going to put his hands on the goat, and the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. The goat will bear, and the word is to lift up. So, Jonah's using language that's not the normal pick-me-up language. It's the language for lifting up for the forgiveness of sins. Lift me up and throw me into the water. What does he mean? So we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? That, you know, you're in, the, you're in the boat with Jesus. So there's another story. We talked about this in, in the Gospels of another man who was in a boat in a storm and was sleeping and had to be waking up to say, we're about to die, what are we going to do? What that guy does, unlike Jonah, what that guy does is he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the storm stops. 
So that's great, you know, there's disciples on the, in the boat, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you think you're going to die or maybe drown, and then you don't. This guy controls the weather. Well, that's mind-blowing. Here's the problem with that, right, is that there's going to be another storm at some point. You're going to be out fishing on the, on the, on, in the boat, and there's going to be another storm. Or you're gonna, they're going to get in a car accident. Or there's going to be Alzheimer's or cancer or something, something along those lines. And, uh, you know, you're, you're safe from that one storm, but something's going to get you eventually. What we need is for the guy in the boat to get rid of all the storms. And this is how he does it. He does it like Jonah by being lifted up and thrown into the water. So again, to, re- to reset. First week we talked about this, Matthew 12. The religious majority say to Jesus, they say, show us a sign. We want to believe in you. Do a magic trick. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign you get is the sign of jo- Jonah. It's weird. The only sign you get is the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By the way, we'll talk about the fish thing next week. He's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. That's the only sign you get. And what does he mean by that? Here's what he means. What Jonah did in the book of Jonah, Jonah allowed his life to be sacrificed as a nasa, a sin offering, so that the sailors' lives could be saved this is what Jesus is going to do. The, the Pharisees and the religious people want a trick. They want power. Do something interesting, Jesus. And instead what he offers them, as confusing as it is, and as un, in the story as unsatisfactory as it is to them, is actually way better. I'm going to be Jonah for you. You're on the boat of life, and you're going down. And unless somebody stops this storm, we're all in huge trouble. And the only way for it to be stopped is for God to expend his wrath on one who's willing to be thrown in the water, but is powerful enough to take it and come out the other side alive. And that one is Jesus. Look, all the idols that we have, all the things that we think, I can get through this storm with X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank. Only the death of Jesus can get you through the storm. Only God saying, don't try to satisfy yourself. Don't use idols to satisfy yourself. I can do it for you because I can die for you. That's the solution. That's the one pro- that, that, that's, that, that's the only way our capital P problem is going to get solved, is by God himself. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would wake us up, make us alive one more time. Open our eyes afresh to the reality of your son Jesus' death for us and resurrection for us to solve all of our problems, to fill up in our lives what all the idols couldn't, to take away the pangs of death, to assure us that no matter what, in you we are indestructible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.